there's understanding the times. Uh, this is just how I've introduced each one of these slides. And today what I want to do is I like to contrast kind of the modern self, which is what we're studying right now, with the Christian worldview. So I'm going to give you a document. So again, just as a reminder for those who are joining us or just to keep this verse in our minds, is and of the children of Issachar, which were wise men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. And that's what we're trying to do, to know what we as the people of God ought to do, because we are now spiritual Israel. And I have this graphic for you, too. And right now, I, I use this three-headed hound of hell called Cerebrus. Um, how do we understand the times right now? We have these three kind of heads on the same body. If you want to say the times or modern culture or whatever, the body is modern culture or the modern or, or the, the, the times that we live in. And these are the different kind of heads we're focusing in on. So right now, again, we're on the modern self via Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Rochelle has it on her desk. I see it right there. I have it in front of me right here. So if you're interested, this is my main source for this. He teaches at Grove City College. You will see him again in video two. We've watched one video already. Um, if you want a link to that, you can actually look this up on YouTube. Um, if you look on the top of those guides that I gave you, it says Carl Truman, Rise and, it'll say something like uh, Makers of the Modern Mind or something. If you, Google, if you Google that or YouTube that, you can find this whole playlist. It's like each one of these is 20 minutes long. So if you miss a session, or if you want to watch it again, or if you want to send it to someone, just YouTube that Carl Truman video title, and you will get this playlist at Grove City College. So it is publicly available just to let you know. All right, so here's some passages, and this is where I say the Christian worldview and the modern self. One of the things that the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but not just us, almost all Western Christians, that is Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, Baptist, Reformed, have some sort of doctrine, we say it slightly differently, about original sin. This is not a popular doctrine in, uh, in the modern self because it teaches that your inner self is broke. Whereas in the modern self, you just need to express what you feel inwardly, and that's how you're an authentic person. Okay, The scriptures say if you're your authentic you, you're busted. You see the conflict here? We have a conflict. <clears throat> right. So this is what this is how this is going to kind of come out. I just want to put these passages up. It's one of the really easy things in Scripture to see. Psalm 51. This is David confessing after his sin with Bathsheba, one of the great penitential Psalms. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So from birth, we're broken. As you know, one of the quotes I like from a reformed pastor is he said, we've got vipers and diapers. <laughs> That's one of those quotes. Right. And he doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you don't love your kids. It just means we're honest about their condition. You don't have to teach them to do bad things. My, my five-year-old was poking his nine-year-old brother at the end of the service today. I didn't have to teach him to do that. He just does that. Okay. <laughs> if, if you don't think your kids are sinners, you either don't have kids or you have uh, a very rose-colored view of your children. Okay, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And so this is what we sometimes call genetic or inherited guilt um, that comes from things. So in other words, we've inherited this nature. It's not just something that we learn. It's built into us from birth, and it comes to all humanity. First John 1, we do this in our confession sometimes, especially at the earlier service. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, I mean, that's about as contradicting as we can get to as far as that. Oh, we're just naturally innocent, and we're pure, and it's just society's fault. Well, then you're calling God a liar because he's saying everybody's sin. So we have a conflict in worldviews here. Some other passages. Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. 
Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, this is an early memory verse that almost all kids learn in Sunday school. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then a second memory verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the, the Bible is very clear on these passages, and I could have put up a dozen more scriptures that buttress this, this doctrine of original sin. Our confessions speak about this as well. This is from uh, Jesus first, though. And he called the people and he said to them, you'll get the reference on the second slide here. Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that has heavenly, that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. The reason I put this up here is because Jesus is teaching that it's not just outward things. We are, it's in inner. It's in our inner life. It's in our thought processes. He speaks about this when it comes to adultery, right? You have heard it said, you shall, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, any man that looks with lust upon a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See what he's teaching here? So it's, we're born deeply corrupt. You get this idea that we're, we're turned towards the bad. We are bent in that sense. That's what the word iniquity means. It means bent behavior. It's not a straight path. We have this in the Augsburg Confession. Our churches teach that since the fall of Adam, all who are naturally born are born with sin. That is, without the fear of God, without trust in God, and with the inclination to sin, called concupiscence. This word, concupiscence, is a weird word. It's an old medieval word, meaning those natural desires and inclinations. And this was a dispute that the Lutherans were having with the Roman church. The Roman church says there's like an original taint that needs to be washed away. And then you can accumulate stuff as you live your life, which is why you have the whole system, right, especially in the Middle Ages, that was built up. The Lutheran position, and I think is not only the biblical one, but it's also the Reformed position as well, is we see, teach something called uh, total corruption, that every single aspect of our being lends itself this way. And so this is true sin. Look at this. Concupiscence is a disease, an original vice that is truly sin. It damns and brings eternal death on those who are not born anew through baptism in the Holy Spirit. Our churches condemn the Pelagians and others who deny that original depravity is sin, thus obscuring the glory of Christ's merit and benefits. Pelagians argue that a person can be justified before God by his own strength and reason. I'm going to argue today that part of the modern self is a modern form of Pelagianism. The idea that people are kind of born as a blank slate and that society corrupts them or uh, their parents corrupt them or because of bad things that happen to them or societal oppression or whatever it is, that's why they do bad things. So instead of it being part of our nature, it's something that comes from outside of us. The real part of us, the authentic you, that's just basically good. That's, that's what society tells you. And we're going to get that from Jean-Jacques Rousseau with the myth of the noble savage and the romantic era, that the expressive individualism that we face in the modern self has deep roots and it explicitly rejects this teaching. Original sin is not popular because it teaches that that inner self is corrupt. We're going to the next one. This is from G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. G.K. Chesterton 
writing in the early 20th century is one of my favorite authors. This one's hilarious. I love this one. Modern Masters of Science. You have to read it twice, so he's very clever and he's a wordsmith. So sometimes you got to read it slowly. Modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with a fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes. <laughs> Whether or not man could be washed in miraculous waters, there was no doubt at any rate that he wanted washing. People know there's something wrong. That's why we seek. So, I mean, if you look at the ancient sacrificial systems, why did they sacrifice to the gods, plural? because they knew something was wrong, right? They knew that they had, that they needed to make atonement of some kind. They knew that they had failed. They knew that there was something beyond themselves that they were accountable to. So even if it was a false religion, they still had this general sense that there was something wrong. That's what he's talking about here. Okay, but certain religious leaders in London, because he's writing from England, not mere materialists, have begun in our day not to deny the highly disputable water, but to deny the indisputable dirt. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I love this way he writes. The strongest straight states and the strongest skeptics alike took positive evil as the starting point of their argument. If it be true, as it certainly is, that a man can feel exquisite happiness in skinning a cat, then the religious philosopher can only draw one of two deductions. He must either deny the existence of God, as all the atheists do, or deny the present union between God, as, God and man, as all the Christians do. The new theologians seem to think it a highly rationalistic solution to deny the cat. <laughs> and so his point, and this is a brilliant, this, it's from orthodoxy. His point here is that if you just look at the world, original sin, it doesn't matter if it's an atheist or a Christian. People look at the world and see there's something wrong. Okay, so is it better government? Is it, what we are, what we're disputing is the solution. That's the dispute, but we all know that there's something wrong. Is it ignorance? Is it a lack of knowledge? Is it sin? What is it? And how we fix it. So it's the fixing part that's the disputed part. But for the new theologians, we deny there's anything wrong. We instead say society is keeping us down from expressing our inner being. So it's wrong is saying that there's something wrong. That's his point. He's writing this in the early 20th century. We are now reaping the fruits of this with the modern self. All right. So which come? So this is my question. Whence comes evil? So where does evil come from? So I've got four different versions of this. I'll put them all on the board right now. So the first one, this is the Christian view, and this is also from classical philosophy, is that evil is real. It's objectively provable, and it's a privation on the good that corrupts both the self and society. That privation on the good thing you see in quotes, that from, comes from the church father Augustine, that evil by definition is like a parasite. It needs something good to be parasitical on. So why is murder wrong? Because it ends a life of something. See how it's a privation on the good? When you steal from somebody, you're taking something that's not yours. It's a privation on the good. When a natural disaster happens, natural evil, it's considered a disaster because people's lives and well-being are ruined. It's a privation on the good. So evil, by definition, is not eternal. There's an argument for the existence of God hidden in this, by the way. If you admit the existence of evil, you actually have to ex uh, admit the existence of an eternal good because evil can't be eternal because it has to have a good to have reference against. You see what I'm saying? So good has to come before evil. Evil by definition has to, so it's not yin and yang, like, you know, or like Jedi religion. It's not Eastern because then down could be up in that case, whether you're yin or yang, right? That's why we, you know, that's why I said Star Wars theology. It's, you know, everything just needs to be in balance, the good and the bad. Well, in Christian theology, bad is just simply a parasite. It, it tries to attack that which is good. So we believe that it's real, okay? That evil is a real thing and that it has its origins inside, but also society because it's individuals writ large. 
Make sense? The second one, evil is an old way of describing national natural processes or just the consensus view of social animals. This is people that take um, neo-Darwinian evolution uh, as a dogma, not just as a process to describe the national world, but as a philosophy. So in other words, if, if we explain everything through naturalistic means, then what we are calling evil is really just nature, red in tooth and claw, to use Henry David Thoreau's phrase. And so when you see the lion eating the zebra, that's just natural selection, right? Or that's just how things are supposed to be. So what we as human beings, as highly social animals declare evil, have declared it to be evil because we're social animals. Not because it's actually evil, but because it's practical for us to call it evil. Do you see how this works? So we're explaining it away scientifically. This was really popular in the late 1800s. Chesterton talks about it in his quote. It's still popular with the new atheists. For those of you who know, in the 2000s, like say 10, 15 years ago, if you heard names like Richard Dawkins or um, uh, Michael Ruse or Christopher Hitchens, and these were really big famous atheists that were going around and publishing their works in, in, a, in academic journals and writing popular books like The God Delusion, that was Richard Dawkins' book. That's their view, is that it's kind of like this. And so um, a really famous example at the University of Minnesota Morris, I'm going to forget his name now, P.Z. Myers, I think is his name. He's a professor of like uh, microbiology or something. He's, he doesn't apologize for it. So, well, yeah, this is just who I am, just a higher animal. You know, that's the view of evil there. This third one, this is the one we're going to talk about today. Evil is learned or it's from societal oppression. So in other words, what evil is, is something that you inherit. You don't inherit it as a human being. It's not inherent in you. It's from society or it's from you learn it from your parents or from it's, it's pressure on you that creates evil. And so what you need to do to create kind of a utopian society is get rid of those things that are creating these evils. And this is very popular here. Because what this means is, well, the reason I'm acting this way is because of that. So the reason I'm violent is because society told me I couldn't be my authentic me. The reason I act out and lash out, the reason I cheated on my wife, the reason why I got an F on the test is because of the man. The man did it. And so now I'm just reacting to the man. Tantrums. Yeah, well, yes, throw a temper tantrum. Okay, but Rousseau's, they're much more sophisticated. The Pelagians... <laughs> Because of that, if you're just a blank slate and it's just learned behavior, you can theoretically live a life without sin. Because if you just work hard enough and if you just avoid those bad influences, you can live a holy and righteous life, blameless life on your own volition. And so our confessions condemn this. The early church, all denominations condemn the Pelagians for this because you can save yourself in the system. But I think we have this Pelagian idea um, that comes from us. And Rousseau, and then in some of, some of the Romantics, not all the Romantics, you're going to hear about Romanticism in a second, they also have this view. And then later, when we get to critical theories, evil is socially relative and a fungible word. This is from postmodern theory. This is the idea that what we call evil might be somebody else's good. The way you'll hear this often phrased is, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Well, then who's right, if that's true? You see what I mean? So that, that's I'm just using a political way of saying that. But there's other ways of saying this, too. Well, yeah, you say it's bad, but that's just your society. In this society, human sacrifice was a good thing. So how dare you judge the Aztecs for killing, you know, 10,000 people in a week? Because that's just their culture and that's just their truth. See what I mean? And so that's going to give you now that's a really extreme example. But now if you start to go to other things, like, for example, we believe in monogamy between a man and a woman. Well, in that culture, it's fine to have polyamory because that's just their culture. How dare you condemn and judge them for this? That's not evil. That's just their culture. 
And so in critical theories, we need to post-colonize morality and just say that's just their morality. See what I mean? So that's going to come in with critical theories. But we we're kind of dealing, so in the understanding the times, I'm going to focus in on three and four. This one's still around, but it's not that popular in the popular imagination. You're, it is very hard to find people that are consistent here. You will find some, but they're almost always academics. They're almost always in like the natural sciences or the social sciences, and they're really devoted to like this kind of Darwinian explanation for everything that's still around. And sometimes it's used to justify some of this, but I'm not going to spend much time on two until we get to um, uh, Truman later on. He's going to kind of mention Darwin and Freud and some other things. But right now I'm going to focus on these two down here, three and four. Okay. So with that in mind, again, the modern self, we're going to deal with three and four. So I'm going to put on Truman now, and this is where you have that guide. And this is uh, video two in our studies on the modern self. And if we need to pause or something, I will. I have the outline in front of me. I will help you with some of these blanks as we go. So remember that original sin, this is my biggest thing, that original sin is rejected. And so if you don't have original sin anymore, when, whence comes evil, right? Why is there evil? Why is there wrongness? Why is there oppression? Jacques Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is going to try to answer this. And a good portion of the romantic movement is going to try to understand this. There's more to it than that, but I wanted to frame this in comparison to a biblical worldview. No, oh, I'm gonna have to do this thing. I'm trying to remember if there's a little intro. Yeah, there is. Here we go. In my first lecture, I looked at a number of aspects of the modern world. I said the need to be explained in terms of looking back at some of the, the historical figures who first or perhaps most compellingly articulated these. I want to focus today on two of those ideas, in particular expressive individualism and that notion of happiness as an inward psychological sense. Remember I said that expressive individualism was the idea that that we are most authentic or most ourselves when we're able to give public or social expression to our inward feelings. And that connects to the idea that we're also most human, most happy, most satisfied, precisely when we're able to do that, precisely uh, when we're able to express ourselves in this outward way that brings that inward sense of psychological satisfaction. The background to this, of course, is one of the distinctives of thinking of thought of the understanding of the self over the last 300 years and that is a turn to the inward to find identity and just to give a simple example if uh, i was born in medieval england and you were to ask me well who were you i would almost certainly there give you external markers for my, my identity well i was born the the son of a peasant farmer so i'm going to be a peasant farmer I was born in this location. I'm going to live. I'm going to die in this location. Uh, I probably met the person I was going to marry by the time I was five or ten years old. My identity would be totally connected to the very stable and fixed geographical and social structure of the world in which I was born. But that's not our world today. Ask somebody who they are and probably they're going to turn inward in some way to explain who they are. Well, I'm artistic, or I'm an extrovert. They're going to move to feelings, to some sort of psychological state, perhaps, for identifying precisely who they think 
themselves to be. And that's a hallmark of the modern age, that inward turn for the quest for the self, for who we are. Think about novels and books. Many novels and books focus, don't they, on the, the inward life of the protagonists, the characters concerned. Think about how important feelings have become in the modern world. How often people are outraged when hurt, feelings are hurt. That inward life has become very, very important to our sense of self, to our sense of who we are. And I will offer in this lecture just a few thoughts on the historical origins and significance of this, particularly focusing on the thought of the Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Romantic movement, the great artistic cultural movement known as Romanticism, which he helped to give birth to. There are three main points in this lecture. The first is that what we witness really from the 17th century onwards is an increasing interest among the intellectuals, among the elites of Western society in human psychology. I don't mean psychology there in the modern sense, sort of post-Freud, counselling, etc., etc. I mean simply in terms of the, the inner life of the mind. I also want to talk about the rejection about the artificiality of society that we see in the 18th century in Rousseau and his followers and their correlative confidence in the power of nature itself to make people into good and authentic human beings. And thirdly, connected to these two and really rising out of it, a theme that will become very, very significant when we move to talk about Nietzsche and then Oscar Wilde in a few lectures time, a belief in the artist. Now, by artist, I don't just mean a painter. I mean somebody engaged in acts of cultural creation. A belief in the artist as the key person to connect people to the reality of the power of nature. So an interest in human psychology, a rejection of the artificiality of society and a confidence, a correlative confidence in nature and a belief in artists. The figure of the artist is the one who can connect people with, we might say, who they really are. Firstly, then, an interest in human psychology. The basic idea in this is that thought is the most real thing, that what we think is the most real thing about us. We see this emerging in the Enlightenment in some fairly sophisticated philosophers. René Descartes, for example, uh, he decided to doubt everything in this great quest for is the something, is the somewhere I can find certainty. And of course, as is well known, he came to the conclusion that the one thing he couldn't doubt was his own existence. Because in doubting his own existence, it was him who had to doubt it. Therefore, his thinking is often summed up in that famous phrase, I think, therefore, I am. So for Descartes, guess what? Thought became the most certain thing. It became the foundation of knowledge for Descartes. The external world, the material world, was less certain than his own existence. His own existence was the one thing that he could not, we might say, coherently doubt. So with Descartes, we, we see this move exemplified, that thought becomes all important. We also see it in the English philosopher John Locke. John Locke uh, was engaged in some ways on the same kind of quest. How do we know things? How can we be certain? 
And he solved that by reflecting on how the mind works, on how we think. So again, though Locke was significantly different from Descartes uh, in philosophy, they were similar in this way. They both sought the answer in here. They both sought the answer in thought. And they represent the setting of the stage for thought, for seeing thought, and the way we think as individuals as being the most important thing about us and about our world. A real precursor, one might say, of our day. Think about it. How we think of ourselves is often considered to be the most foundational thing about us. The most dramatic and radical example of this uh, might be the sort of transgender moment at which we are living. I think I'm a woman, though I have a man's body, therefore I must be a woman. My thought is far more real. My feelings are far more real than my physical body. It's odd to connect Descartes to uh, the transgender movement, for example, but they both have this in common. They represent this priority of, you might say, inner psychology, of inner psychological conviction over the external material world. Okay, so if you're not getting these blanks, I'm just pausing this really briefly. So that was letter C um, at the beginning here. This leads to the idea that my thoughts and feelings are even more important than my physical body. That is, that's a big deal, because that's how people think right now that instead we need to use science or use medical technology to confirm what I feel inside. See what I so in other words, I reject the body I have because how I feel inside is more real than the body that I have. So therefore I'm going to go get gender reassignment surgery or something. You see how this works? So in other words, because that is the most real part of me, the most authentic part of me. And so there's certain things I can do to present myself this way, but that's still not good enough for me because I feel this way. And so now I'm going to use all this modern technology to completely go the whole way and even reimagine and mutilate or reassign or reconstruct my entire body just to reflect my inner feelings. That's how foundational this really is. That's why he's, he's going this route. Uh, in letter B, it says, and so just to kind of, I'm going working my way backwards. Um, uh, it says, this included the rejection of the artificiality of society and faith or confidence in nature. You're going to get more of this in Rousseau. That means that this is why, as Americans, we even hear this as Americans, uh, this romantic view of nature. We say it this way. I just want to get away from society. I'm just me when I'm just by myself in the mountains. That's how we say it. It's coming from this, this, this sort of thinking, this kind of idea that, you know, kind of old West idea of the singular man who creates his own society. And he kind of takes he's, you know, the maverick that takes justice into his own hands. Think those old Westerns where you have the one sheriff who does everything. You know, it's that kind of mindset. We as Americans have inherited some of this. Um, the next, uh, then it says the interest in psychology. If you don't know how to spell it, that's okay. You can write it for yourself. It's a Greek word, so we always screw that one up. And then in letter A, it's a turn to the inward to find our true identity. And then in particular, he's focusing on Rousseau. You saw it spelled up there again. It'll come back up again. Uh, and then romanticism, which again, romanticism is a big movement, but it's going to be a particular strand of romanticism that he's going to talk about that comes from this. So if you didn't get those blanks, um, that's what those things are. So hopefully I think you see where he's going with this because he's going to identify how this works and you'll recognize some phrases and some language that actually has much deeper roots than you think it does. So one of the things I hope you get out of this class, if you're in my class regularly, is even though we're living in a really strange and weird time, what we're actually doing is reaping the fruit of some stuff that was planted centuries ago. It just takes a while 
for that stuff to kind of come out and into fruition. It doesn't come out in a vacuum. There's a reason for it. I'm going to continue. So now we're on uh, letter two. Where it says two books by Rousseau, and you'll see this. I liked what he said about the England, too. Did you catch that? Medieval England? You grew up in medieval England. I know who I am. I know who I'm going to marry. I know what my job's going to be. I know my geography. I know everything about me externally. It's given to me. Now it's the opposite. What do you want to be when you grow up? Where are you going to live? Where are you, going to, you decide it all for yourself. That's, that's a radical departure from most of human history to think that way. Here we go. Think about happiness. I talked about this in the last lecture. How many of us think about happiness in terms of a psychological state? I feel happy. What do you mean when you say I feel happy? You're talking about feelings. You're talking about your psychology. It's an inward psychological state that we now consider to be the essence of happiness and the essence of who we are. And perhaps the most culturally significant figure for this is the Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. His dates, 1712 to 1778. So he spans the majority of the 18th century. He was a strange, odd man, self-taught, definitely a genius, remarkably learned, and yet predominantly self-taught, multi-talented, wrote music, wrote books, wrote novels. Yet he was also a remarkably strange, in many ways an unsympathetic figure. All four of his children he had sent immediately to an orphanage on their birth. And orphanages in the 18th century were hellholes. Essentially, he sentenced his four children to death. We have no idea what happened to them, but we assume that they did not live very long. He famously fell out with the contemporary Scottish philosopher, David Hume, uh, was convinced actually that David Hume was out to kill him. There was an element of paranoia and insecurity about Rousseau as well. But he was enormously influential on cultural developments from the 18th century to today. His political thought helped shape the French Revolution. Though he was dead, he died in 1778, a decade, over a decade before the French Revolution took place. He is the guiding intellectual genius of the French Revolution. And his philosophy of education stands as the key historical precursor of much of today's philosophy of childhood education. Child-centered learning is in many ways the offspring, the genealogical descendant of the thoughts of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I want to look at just uh, a couple of his works today to bring out key themes of relevance to this lecture series. And first of all, I want to talk about his book, Confessions. It wasn't published until after he died, uh, but the Confessions is an autobiography. It uh, is an attempt to tell the story of his life. And what's so interesting about it is it attempts to tell the story of his life from the inward psychological perspective. He says this at the start, I am resolved on an undertaking that has no model and will have no imitator. I want to show my fellow men a man in all the truth of nature. And this man is to be myself. The particular object of my confessions is to make known my inner self, exactly as it was in every circumstance of my life. It is the history of my soul that I promised. And to relate it faithfully 
I require no other memorandum. All I need to do, as I've done up until now, is to look inside myself. Now that sounds passe to us. You know, typically when we buy uh, autobiographies today, uh, we want to know something about, what's the phrase? What makes the person tick? We may know a lot about their public life, but what we want to know is what makes them think? What's going on inside their head when they're doing these great and glorious or perhaps sometimes not so great and rather inglorious things? What were they thinking? What made them do that? What was their motivation? To say, it sounds passe to us to move inward. But Rousseau really is in many ways the innovator, the path breaker on this one. And his biography, his biography does exactly that. What he does is he tries to recount to the reader how he felt, what was motivating him, why he was thinking and acting the way he was at any given moment in time. And that fuels, of course, that modern, perhaps I should call it a cult of authenticity that now marks our own society. Said in the last lecture, that idea of the authentic individual is the idea of the individual who is inwardly that which they project outwardly. And that's become a very, very important type, a very, very important factor in our modern culture. Think even of the American presidency. It's remarkable, isn't it, that in the early 1970s, the reputation of Richard Nixon was wrecked in large part in the popular mind. Because when the transcripts of the Watergate tapes were released, there were those expletive deleted sections. The idea that the president of the United States would use profanity in his role as the president was simply horrific. People expected their politicians to act with restraint and decorum. Now, of course, it's shocking, I think, how many politicians will use the most uh, explicit profanity, even in their political speeches. And yet it plays well. Why does it play well? Because it makes you think they're authentic. It makes you think that what you see is exactly what you get. What you see up front is exactly who they are inside. And Rousseau, by presenting this ideal in his confessions of uh, biography, autobiography as being, if you like, a confession of the inner life, presents really as, as a virtuous ideal, the idea of the authentic human being. That's the first thing that the Confessions really sets forth an ideal of human authenticity based on that turn inward. Secondly, secondly, second thing that Rousseau does is he argues very strongly in two of his great works, the first discourse and the second discourse, that society is artificial. And it's society that fundamentally corrupts the individual by making them be outwardly that which they are not inwardly. Society, if you like, makes us inauthentic. He articulates this in the first discourse. The first discourse is interesting essay he wrote uh, uh, in an essay competition. Uh, and the title for the essay in the competition was this. Has the progress of the sciences and the arts led to the corruption or purification of morals? 
no doubt those who had uh, set forth the competition expected uh, the writers, the respondents to say uh, that the arts and the sciences have dramatically improved human beings. Rousseau being a contrarian took the opposite and argued that the arts and sciences have actually corrupted people. And this is how he puts it. How sweet it would be to live among us if the outward countenance were always the image of the heart's dispositions, if decency were virtue, if our maxims were our rules, if genuine philosophy were inseparable from the title of philosopher, before art had fashioned our manners and taught our passions to speak in ready-made terms. Our morals were rustic but natural, and differences in conduct conveyed differences of character at first glance. He goes on, today when subtle inquiries and the more refined taste have reduced the art of pleasing to principles, a vile and deceiving uniformity prevails in our morals, and all minds seem to have been cast in the same mould. Constantly politeness demands, propriety commands. Constantly one follows custom, never one's own genius. One no longer dares to appear what one is, and under this perpetual constraint, the men who make up the herd of what is called society, will, when placed in similar circumstances, all act in similar ways, unless more powerful motives incline them differently. This lies behind uh, what has come to be called Rousseau's notion of the noble savage, that man in a state of nature was instinctively good. Man in a state of nature was instinctively empathetic to others and would act in an upright moral fashion. And that it was society. It was the need to compete with others. It was the need to be something that you weren't really in order to get on. It was the need to get ahead that made man, that made woman wicked. That was the burden of the second discourse, he wrote, entitled On the Origins of Inequality. Think for a moment how influential those basic ideas have become. Child-centered learning is predicated on the notion that the child is fundamentally okay, and the purpose of education is to allow that child to express who they really are, to get out of the way, we might say. The notion, now a commonplace, now an intuition we all have, really, that it's society that is to blame for the problems of the individual, deep and powerful, that's Rousseau. Also inspired in his own day, a move to think that the closer to nature one was, the more truly human, the more authentic one was. And that leads to his inspiration of the artistic cultural movement, which later scholars dub romanticism. We're going to get to romanticism in a second. I want to kind of talk through the, the body. So if you didn't get the, the two books, under number two, letter A is his confessions. And this is where we get what he calls the cult of authenticity based on the inner life. Did you, did you like his comparison there about profanity and politicians? That's like, oh, see, he's a genuine person because he's swearing. Isn't that an odd comment? But it's, it's, that's how a lot of us think. It doesn't matter what, and I'm not picking on any political party. It doesn't matter if it's Joe Biden, Donald Trump. I don't really care. When they get up there and they kind of freewheel it and they get off the script, we don't want him off the script, right? Well, he's just saying stuff off the teleprompter. I want to know what he really thinks. See what I mean? That's what this is because that's how we think. We want the authentic them. That's also why we like try to dig up everything about their personal lives because we want to know what makes them tick. See what's going on? So that we have this obsession with the inner life of people and this authenticity idea because we think this way. 
we're not immune as American Christians. And if anything, Americans, especially with this stuff, we are in some ways the worst on some of this stuff. Because it's like, think about this. Here's another great way of measuring this. Informality versus formality. How often do we say, oh, don't dress up like that. That's You don't need to. Just wear jeans. And then informality itself becomes the formality. I've actually been to things where they say, why are you dressed up? Why? Because it makes them stand, it makes them feel bad. You see what I'm saying? Isn't that weird? That we go the opposite route instead of dress up for something, it's dressed down. If you do dress up, you're the weird one. Because that's just not that's just a that's just a that's society. That's oppressive to have to have a dress code. That's oppressive to have to wear a suit, right? So in the symphony, I mean, if I wanted to be my authentic me in the symphony orchestra, right? The symphony orchestra, we all wear the same things. I mean, I could just see it right now. Why do I have to wear this? It makes me a better musician if I get to wear what I want because I'm expressing myself. Right? I mean, that's that's the sort of logic that this is. This is why, by the way, when we get to romanticism, why some people let rock musicians get away with things that nobody else in society can, because that's just who they are. They're just being their genuine selves. It's not, it's, society hasn't caught up with them yet. And so somebody like Kurt Cobain can drug overdose, and he's still a hero, because he's just being his genuine me. See what I mean? So this really impacts pop culture in our view, especially of musicians and of artists. The idea of the struggling artist who lives in squalor and who's drug addicted, but he's still genuine and he's passionate. So therefore, he's a good musician. It's hard because as teachers, we even we lift some of those virtues up as Christians, uh, being honest and authentic, right. being genuine person. But that doesn't mean what they, this means, no, right? But they're getting mixed up with kids. Mm -hmm. They get mixed up. Because we, because yeah, I agree, right? We are, we are to be honest. We are not, we got this fly buzzing around up here. We're supposed to be honest. We are supposed to not be bearing false witness against our neighbor. We are not supposed to be hypocrites. Those are good things. The problem is, is what that's happened is, is by, by saying that our inner life is our authentic me, we're instead saying then that there is no standard of behavior except what I feel is inside of me. And so now being authentic is not, oh, I'm going to tell you the truth. Being authentic is now, if you tell me that I can't, you're inherently making me unhappy, right? You're inherently stopping me from being my authentic me. That's where we get this idea of the myth of the noble savage. Did you hear that? You've heard that before, right? And that's why people will idolize like pre-European um, uh, uh, new world civilizations. That's kind of the thing right now, right? Well, everything was great. It was like a utopia before Columbus came. The reason they say that is because they think not only Christian civilization, but Western civilization, this idea that there's organized law and government and society and taxation and capitalism. And, you know, you can make this whole list of things that corrupts people. If you would just let people live tribalistically, they would be good. That's what this is, though. That's that's why. So I'm serious. Open up an American history textbook that's written now. And this is what they're saying. Now, they, they couch it in critical theory. Know, this was oppressive or something like that but at its root it's this it's this idea that if you just let people be on their own and just live in a state of harmony with nature we'd have utopia you know that's that's the understanding and so then yeah the colonists are these you know, rapacious pillaging racist whatever and the reason they are is because they're stopping people from being their authentic societal selves okay and then you read all of history that way and i'm not saying that they're perfect they're still sinners too okay everybody's sinners that's my whole point is that both the people that were here before colonization and the people that came during colonization, they're all sinners, okay? They're all sinners. And then the ones that are Christian are simultaneously saint and sinner. They're not going to be perfect, okay? So you're going to find good things and bad things. They're not the greatest hero since Jesus, and they're not the devil either. 
You know what I'm saying? So for some reason, we think this way, and it impacts the way in history. Trust me, when I try to pick out an American history textbook, it took me years to find a good American history textbook because it's full of this stuff and the way we interpret history. I had to find one from the 1980s that I can actually use. Okay, Seriously, they're doing a 1980s Oxford textbook for American history, partly because this sort of thinking infects even the way we write our textbooks. Okay, um, And then I love that. And then again, as an educator, for those of you who are educators or have been in education, do you see that, that child-centered learning idea? Well, they're basically good. And the goal is to just kind of help them realize who they really are, right? We're in like say ancient Greeks, if you're a Spartan, it was to become a soldier. It was not who you authentically are. If you're seven years old, you're learning how to throw a javelin. That's just who we are as Spartans. In Athens, it was to create a virtuous citizen for the polis. In Rome, there were certain citizen virtues to be a Roman citizen, right, that you had to learn. They didn't say, oh, just be your authentic you. And that's just what it means to be a Roman. You see what I mean? That we, that's, that's different, okay? And so for Christians, our identity is in Christ. Our identity is not in our inner being. As you saw in all those passages at the beginning, our inner being is corrupt. Our inner being inclines itself towards the bad. Our inner being, and so to say that society is keeping me down, well, that's probably a good thing because if we were just left to our own devices, how would society look? And actually, uh, Rochelle said this. You want a novel that actually shows us in the right way, not Rousseau, read Lord of the Flies. That's what happens when we are the noble savage, okay? We're not so noble. Lord of the Flies is more accurate, more honest about human nature, okay? I don't, I mean... I, uh, Mrs. Gomez teaches that, by the way. I think she does a pretty good job with it because she connects it to some of these, these themes on that. Um, and so we're going to do the romantic stuff later. Uh, I wanted to end on this quote. Look at this quote from Thomas Sowell. He's a, he's, and I, you don't have to love his politics. I'm just saying I think this is a great quote because it shows the contrast. Okay, So he is an African-American. Uh, he's now retired but still does work. Professor of economics at Stanford. He's at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. So African-American professor. Look at his quote. <laughs> Each new generation... Born is an infected invasion of civilization by little barbarians who must be civilized before it's too late. That's the classical view of education right there. Rousseau would have adamantly disagreed with him on this. He would have said that those people, those little barbarians, they're the real authentic people. We should be more like them. It's a very con that's a huge contrasting worldview here. I personally agree. My, my knowledge is, is, is to follow Thomas Sowell. Okay, I don't expect high school kids to come in these like genuine angels that need to be just, you know, just if they express themselves, we'd have a great school. No, I come them kept expecting that they need to be molded and formed and corrected. And sometimes, you know, I'm cynical with them on purpose because I don't expect the good. I don't expect them to do the right thing. In fact, I often expect them to do the wrong thing. But, and that's, by the way, that way you never, my wife said that's cynicism. Right, then you're never disappointed, right? No. <laughs> but, but no, but honestly, with high school kids, I mean, we know this. Their hypothalamus isn't completely form, formed yet, right? All the different parts of the brain didn't say that, right? That's the temperature regulator. But they have, their, their brains are not fully, they're, they're not fully formed until they're like in their 20s, especially boys. So do I expect my 15-year-old boy to act like a civilized human being? The answer is no. I expect him to be subject to his passions. And my job and the school's job and parents' job is to teach them how to control their passions, and to learn how to be a virtuous person. But Rousseau would disagree with that. He would say those genuine things they're feeling, just let them vent them in creative ways. And then if everybody does that, we'll just get along. See, that's, that's a, and, and I'm telling you, that's a lot of people honestly believe that. There are parents that refuse to discipline their kids because of this. If I discipline my kid, that's going to make them feel bad about themselves. I hear that and I'm like, good. <laughs> they should feel bad about themselves when they do that. You know, 
I say that. That's, I mean, it seems like I'm seeing something. This is right in the diapers and di vipers and diapers. We should feel bad about our sins. It's like we should celebrate them. Okay. So if my kid does something wrong and he feels bad, I actually think that's a healthy emotion to feel bad. That's how you develop a conscience. You know what I'm saying? So we have a real issue here with uh, the way we understand children, the way we understand education, and also the purpose and role of government and society when it comes to this. All right. You see my children that I uh, was just making fun of just a little bit ago. Okay. They can, they can nod. There he is. He's giving a high five. Al, because I've told you that. Reset, right, right, Al? You can confirm me. Yeah, you're making me feel bad. And what was my response? Good. Yeah. <laughs> you should feel bad. <laughs> they stared at me. But I mean, it's not because and it's not because I want a kid to cry or it's not because it's because we have to learn things. And as an adult, there are things where I've screwed up and I shouldn't just say, well, I'll just make my authentic me. So I didn't do my grades. <laughs> no, I've messed up. I got distracted. I, you know what I mean? And so I don't know why we kind of struggle with this. But as a society, we really had this um, as an issue. So anyways, we did the first uh, side of this. Next week, I'm going to show. So I have to be in Rigby. Pastor Chris is going to come to my class and he might go through this, but he also has some other material he might supplement. We're talking about this right now. And so next week, this class is still going to continue. I'm going to have my wife set everything up. We're going to record videos. Everything's going to be preloaded. But I'm going to have Chris walk you through some of this, too. And he has some interesting things he's experienced um, in ministry where he's encountered some of this. So I think you'll love I think he has some stories that he wants to tell that I think will help kind of give you an idea for a pastor or a pastor's perspective, how they encounter this daily or in even just starting a, starting a church. Uh, comments, questions? I know I need to let you go to the other service, and I have to serve, too. Oh, B? Oh, his discourses. Just say discourses. Discourses. His discourses. All right, let's say the blessing on ourselves, and then I got to get over there, so I'll let you close my doors. But uh, the Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. Amen.